It's Tuesday, March the 9th, and you're watching Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. I'll be the moderator of today's shows. Being the moderator means I get to introduce the stars of the show, our Hoover Institution Goodfellows, as we jokingly refer to them. They're wise men, wise guys, but uh, intellectually wise guys, I might add. Uh, but we are in store for, for the better part of the next hour, the three of them offering their insights into these rather complicated times. So let's meet the Goodfellows, beginning with John Cochran. John's an economist, and he is the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. Hey, John. Hi, great to see you guys again. Our second good fellow is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fawada Michelle Aljami Senior Fellow, and he's the author of the best-selling book, Battlegrounds, A Fight to Defend the Free World. Hello, H.R. Hi, Bill. Great to be with you guys. And our third good fellow, yes, he is back. Joining us again from his wilderness outpost is Neil Ferguson. Neil is the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. He is, of course, a renowned historian and author. His next book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, is coming out in early May. You can pre-order it right now on Amazon. Better yet, you can order both Neil's book and Ian Hersey Alley's book, Prey, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. Neil, I say that because you two are a package, but also we're still basking in the afterglow of Ion's appearance, taking your place last week on Goodfellas. Be honest, my friend. Did you miss us? I did, uh, but of course, it, it hurts to be eclipsed, and it's it's very difficult to come back. She's she's a hard act to follow. I'll do my best. Amen to that. She was a joy to have on, and please uh, send along our best to her, Neil. Uh, a hat tip to John Cochran for suggesting this week's topic, which is Endless Wars, Forever Wars, The Future of War, uh, which tells me two things. Number one, John is in addition to being a very brilliant economist, a big picture intellect who thinks about the world's conditions. Secondly, it also tells me as an economist, John is always looking to economize, and he wants to get a free tutorial from two rather brilliant global thinkers. So here we go. Uh, HR, I want you to get into the short-term outlook for Afghanistan, where the Biden administration might be headed with the May 1st deadline for troop withdrawal fast approaching. With that, uh, America's role in uh, projecting force around the world. Neil, I want you to get into the bigger picture here, which is the question of empires, great powers, and the relationship of wars to their existence. In this day and age, can there be such a thing as a Pax Americana if America has a moral obligation to be, in effect, the world's policeman? Um, HR, let's uh, start off the conversation. A week ago at this time, you appeared before the Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, the topic of that conversation was global security, challenges, and strategy. Uh, when it comes to questions of going to war, HR, a call to arms, military intervention, does America have a strategy in place? If we have a strategy for going in, HR, do we have a strategy for coming out? In other words, what have we learned in the nearly 20 years since U.S. forces first entered Afghanistan? Well, I mean, it's a sad story on Afghanistan, Bill. Of course, what brought us into that war was the most devastating terrorist attack in history. We have to remember, you know, sometimes wars choose you rather than the other way around. Or as, or as the great philosopher G.K. Chesterton once said, uh, that, you know, war may not be the best way of settling differences, but it might be the only way to ensure that they're not settled for you. So, uh, of course, that's what brought us into the war. We waged in Afghanistan a very effective initial military campaign, mainly enabling Afghan militias uh, with air power, intelligence, uh, and, 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 and our tremendous special forces capabilities and, and units and soldiers. Uh, but you know that swift, light footprint victory mm -hmm. uh, didn't bridge into the consolidation of those military gains to get to a sustainable political outcome 
consistent with what brought us into that war to begin with, which was to ensure that Afghanistan never again became a safe haven and support base for terrorists who want to commit mass murder against us, uh, again, on the scale of, of 9-11, and, and really inconsistent and unsound approaches to the problem set in Afghanistan over the last 20 years lengthened that war, made it much more costly than, than it would have been otherwise. Now, it was never going to be easy in Afghanistan. And we should remember, you know, Afghanistan, again, doesn't need to be Denmark. It just needs to be Afghanistan. But, you know, over, over the years, uh, you know, our, our strategy was inconsistent and I would say self-delusional. Sadly, that self-delusion is continuing today. I don't know if you've seen uh, Secretary Blinken's note to Ashraf Ghani in which he is essentially saying, well, we really need the Afghan government to, you know, to conform to this peace agreement. When, of course, it's the Taliban that's mm -hmm. violating you know, the, that, that very weak agreement, an agreement that we entered into the Taliban after making concession after concession and setting the Afghan government up really for an impossible situation. So, you know, I, I think what's sad about the war there uh, is, is that I, there's going to be a civil war and a humanitarian catastrophe unless there's a reversal of this policy and a recognition that the Taliban is not going to adhere to you know, a, a, a more humane uh, philosophy. Uh, they they remain the, the brutal organization they are, and they are utterly intertwined uh, with jihadist terrorist organizations, including al-Qaeda. Al mm -hmm. Can I ask HR? Um, we so I asked this show because I don't know enough about this stuff, and I get to ask you guys questions. We seem to be amazingly good at winning wars. Uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, just the U.S. military. Hats off to you guys. Um, but then we seem to be terrible at the sub subsequent peace: uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, um, Syria, Libya. I, I find it hard. Vietnam. I find it hard to think. Uh, well, we didn't get, we didn't even try that one. Um, I find it hard to think of a, a model where this has ever worked. So we could start small for for uh, for Afghanistan, but um, is there a path to invading a country, uh, especially one as weak and chaotic as Afghanistan, and then leaving? What what would that path be? When when has it ever worked? Um, help us out here on how America can win the peace. Well, it, you know, it really depends on what your objective is, John. You know, so I, I would just say that if you have a narrowly circumscribed objective, like in the Gulf War, right? Hey, give Kuwait back to the Kuwaitis, uh, th and that's all you care about. You know, you you can do that quite rapidly. Although we, sh it's worth pointing out that we had a sustained effort in the Gulf region after that to contain Saddam in 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 the, in the subsequent years, uh, and 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 conducted some major airstrikes uh, against uh, uh, Iraqi facilities in the, in the years after the Gulf War as well. But, you know, I, I think that what's important to recognize is that unless it's a raid, John, like a raid is the military definition of a raid is, is an operation of, of short duration, limited purpose and planned withdrawal. If it's not that and you want to achieve a political outcome, the consolidation of gains is, is not like an optional phase, right? It's something you have to do. Well, and, and when you prepare for it, you can actually do it competently if you have the degree of agency you need, you and like-minded indigenous partners, typically. Now, we, there, there, there have been, you know, of course, some significant studies about this. One is uh, Nadia Shadlow, who's a visiting fellow here at, uh, at Hoover, 
uh, her book called War and the Art of Governance shows from a historical perspective, hey, we've always had to do it. And in the conclusion of her book, she calls it American denial syndrome, that we always think, okay, we're not going to have to do that next time. Well, we've never been able to never do it again. <laughs> and and uh, and even for, you know, it, when in retrospect, seem like relatively easy military operations, like the invasion of, 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 of Panama, for example, I mean, there, there was a there was a lot of work to do on the back end of that to consolidate those gains and and transition uh, after the after uh, to to a post Noriega government in 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 Panama. So, so uh, you know, Dominican Republic in 1965. You can just every every example of an intervention required a consolidation of gains. Now, the the point that you made, John, in, in one of our exchanges recently, was that hey, we still have 28,500 troops in South Korea. Yeah, I mean that's. They're consolidating to you know, get the gains made there uh, after the invasion in June 1950, uh, and and um, and so there there really aren't short term solutions to some of these longer term problems. Well, not 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 to mention Germany uh, and Japan. The United States, of course, has won uh, the most important pieces, uh, even if it's lost some less important pieces. But one must bear in mind. Uh, that this uh, this whole debate is is now such an old one that I I'm feeling almost geriatric listening to it. I I first started to write about this stuff 20 years ago, uh, around about the time of uh, of 9/11. I'd written about the problem of American foreign policy before it happened during the the Bill Clinton presidency, and I'm going to throw out my framework that I developed. Uh, thinking about why it was all going to go wrong, uh, particularly in Iraq. I think Afghanistan actually, as HR says, went well at first. But when I came to put this into a book form, in a book called Colossus, uh, which had as a subtitle, The Rise and Fall of America's Empire, the argument I made was that there were three deficits that, that ensured that it would be very difficult for the United States to behave in the imperial way that, say, Britain had behaved uh, in the 18th and 19th uh, centuries, that even if there were some neoconservatives who wanted to talk uh, in imperial terms, it was all going to go wrong. And it was partly because of a manpower deficit. Americans don't really want to go and spend long periods of time in, in hot, poor, dangerous countries, hence the sort of relatively short tours of duty that characterize American military uh, interventions. Then your territory, John, uh, there was a fiscal deficit. And that problem of a structural uh, weakness in American public finances was obvious even in 2001. And it's only got more serious since then. And then thirdly, what I think is most important, the attention deficit. The American public does not really have, and this has been true since Korea, uh, a stomach for very long-term uh, military conflicts, it, it, it really quite likes these things to be over within an election cycle. Uh, and those three deficits, I think, help to explain why uh, things in Iraq and Afghanistan did not produce the kind of uh, wonderful outcomes that some neoconservatives envisaged back uh, in 2003. When I was writing the biography of Henry Kissinger, I added a, a fourth deficit, the history deficit. A great many American decision makers are sort of shockingly ignorant of, of history and, uh, and tend not to think that there is anything to be learned from the history of particularly other countries 
I'll, I'll give you a little anecdote that HR will enjoy. Uh, about 2004, I got a, an out-of-the-blue email from a, junior, a group of junior officers in Iraq. Um, and the email went roughly like this. We hear there was an insurgency when you guys, meaning the Brits, were here uh, in, in the 1920s. Do you know anything about that? And uh, it was clear that almost nobody uh, in the sort of senior decision-making uh, echelons had given any attention at all to the British experience in, in Iraq. And, and the, counter, uh, the insurgency and the counterinsurgency that it necessitated actually bore quite striking resemblances to what happened in, in 1920, except that uh, in 1920, it was much easier to run Iraq because the population was much smaller relative to the British military presence. And of course, they were much better armed uh, in 2004. So I, I think the history deficit may be the most important of all the deficits. Last anecdote, uh, when I was writing volume one of Kissinger, I had to delve into Vietnam. And like HR, thinking about the history of Vietnam has, has taken up a lot of, uh, of my time as a scholar. In my case, very recently, he did it long ago. Uh, and what really uh, shocked me was that I got a letter from somebody who'd been in the Bush administration in a senior position in George W. Bush's administration, reflecting on the Kissinger diaries that I that I included in my book, describing Kissinger's early visits to Vietnam in the mid-1960s. And Kissinger analyzed at that point what was going wrong in America's intervention in Vietnam. Uh, and the person who wrote to me, whose identity I won't reveal, said, as I was reading your quotations from Kissinger's mid-60s letters from Vietnam, I had a terrible recognition that we had made exactly the same mistakes in Iraq. Uh, and, and the fact that that was a revelation to somebody who'd been in a position of real seniority in the Bush administration, I found that absolute vindication that the history deficit is a structural problem in the way America approaches its interventions. Sorry, John. Go I'm going to ask questions, so go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to expand on Neil's comment about you know, what, what I think was, you know, was, uh, was willful ignorance uh, during, the, during the invasion of Iraq uh, by a number of people who deliberately neglected our history because they believed that war had changed fundamentally and, and that the so-called revolution in military affairs of the, you know, the 1990s demonstrated during the, the Gulf War and then expanded on with, with new technologies, emerging technologies associated with assured communications, satellite imagery, precision strike, and so forth, uh, that had fundamentally changed the nature of war such that future war could be waged quickly, cheaply, efficiently, mainly at standoff range. And what this neglected were continuities in the, in the nature of war, that war is fundamentally political, and therefore you have to achieve a sustainable political outcome. War is fought. People fight. People employ use violence for the same reasons Thucydides identified 2,500 years ago, fear, honor, and interest. And if you're not addressing what's driving that violence, you're treating only the symptoms, which we did in, in Iraq as, as, an, as an insurgency coalesced and gained strength over time. And then war is uncertain. You know, the future course of events depends not just on what you decide to do, you know, like leave Iraq later in, in December of 2011, 
uh, your enemy actually has a say in, in the future course of events. And they just don't say, well, I guess the war's over, the Americans left. I mean, actually, they have ambitions of their own uh, that, that, that really can place at risk our, our, our interests, as we saw ISIS do in Iraq, and I think as we will see uh, the Taliban and jihadist terrorists do if we, if we do just you know, head for the exit in Afghanistan. And then finally, as, 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 uh, as Neil alluded to and you alluded to, John, War is a contest of wills, right? And and if, if American leaders, if the president in particular is not explaining to the American people what they need to know, hey, first of all, what is at stake? Where why we why do we care about this? And and second, what is a strategy that will deliver a favorable outcome at an acceptable cost? And I, I will tell you, American leaders across multiple administrations haven't done that. Uh, on Afghanistan. I mean, we have a paltry number of troops employed overseas. I mean, it's 2,500 troops, right, in, in, in Afghanistan. Uh, we are at a very low level of commitment as we support Afghans who are bearing the brunt of that fight. By the way, I think most Americans don't know there are more European troops in Afghanistan now than there are American troops. So I really think this, this is really a self-generated this clamoring for withdrawal and that we we can't sustain the effort because the effort is is actually uh, small uh, from a relative perspective, uh, from a historical perspective, uh, and just in context of the history of those conflicts. Well, let me push back on both of you guys because, um, yes, it's small, but it's taken a long time. Uh, and I think, HR, there is a difference between war. We're, we're great at going in and unseating a power. What we're not great at is then the counterinsurgency, then establishing something that lets us leave. Now, you said something about raids early on. There's a case for raids. Um, there's a case for this regime has to go, and we don't mind if we leave chaos in its wake, we're going to take it out. Uh, but it would be a lot easier for America to do that if we know how to leave and leave something in place. Now, uh, Neil, you mentioned Germany, Japan, and uh, North Korea, which are, those are, are cases where it worked. Sorry. <laughs> South Korea. <laughs> South Korea, the next one to come. Yeah, but those, those troops are there mostly to counter an external threat, not to counter an internal threat. And the usual story told, at least to rubes like me, is that um, that worked because those places had institutions of civil society going that could be turned on uh, to run again. Uh, and the, well, you know, the problem in Iraq is that there were no institutions of civil society, or to the extent that there were, we went in as complete ingenue, thinking that we would just run an election and then somehow it would look like Jeffersonian democracy when it came out, forgetting that you need a court system, you need police, you need property rights, you need a population used to discussing a political thing and, and not militarily. Mm -hmm. um, so that, from my point, I'll ask you guys if, I'm, if, if, if that's wrong, but, and in World War II, after World War II, um, we kind of uh, blinked a little bit about, um, you know, so so we, we did have war crimes trials for the top end, but the local mayor, when it came time to, we need to rebuild this place, well, okay, you might've been a bit of a Nazi in the past, but we're gonna leave that in place. Whereas we, we blew up what structures there were in, uh, in Iraq and, and didn't allow them to build on that. So how do you um, not just view this as endless counterinsurgency, but how do you build institutions of civil society? Seems to be, the question, the, the precondition to letting you leave. Why don't I go first? It, it strikes me that it's hard to make comparisons. True, uh, West Germany as it as it emerged, and Japan after 1945 uh, were 
far more advanced uh, economies and societies than, uh, say, Vietnam, South Vietnam, or for that matter, Iraq. On the other hand, they were in utter ruins at the end of World War II. And it's easy to forget how totally the uh, established institutions had been had been wrecked, not just by uh, air warfare, but by the regimes, uh, the Hitler regime and the nationalist regime in Japan. So I, I think it's worth bearing in mind that the task in the late 1940s in those countries was in many ways just as daunting as the task that the US confronted in Iraq and Afghanistan. I'd also say that South Korea bears a, a much closer resemblance. One forgets, because South Korea has been such a success story, how dirt poor it was uh, when finally uh, the war ended uh, and Korea was partitioned. But South Korea is in some ways the, the poster child uh, of, of a successful uh, rising from the ashes and the U.S. military guarantee was a vital part of that. Uh, one must also remember that the South Korean regime was an authoritarian regime uh, for decades before democratization proved uh, possible. But when you look at the economics, it's actually the the miracle of miracles, really. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it, it illustrates a critical point that I used to spend a lot of time discussing with the late John McCain. Uh, it needed the duration of uh, of American commitment for the institutions uh, to to bed down, and and because we ceased to be able to make that kind of long term commitment after Vietnam, well, I should really say during Vietnam, because the decision to kind of not make that commitment was made in the late sixties and early seventies. I think because we now more or less explicitly make our commitments uh, time limited, uh, there is a kind of obvious advantage to the other side. You can wait the US out. And, and I remember you, you may, may recall this in 2008, John McCain on the campaign trail got into an argument as he was wont to do with someone at a town hall and, and said it, it was a rash thing to say that he didn't really mind if, if, if US troops were going to be uh, in Iraq for 100 years. But it was kind of true that if you were serious about building institutions in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan, it wasn't going to be doable in four-year or five-year timeframes. Of course, nobody wanted to hear that. And, and I think it was, it was a perfect illustration of how fundamentally hostile American political culture is to the idea now of any long-term commitment, whether you call it empire or give it some other much more um, acceptable name. Americans don't want that kind of engagement. And it's striking, isn't it, that we've had various flavors of disengagement offered to, to voters. Uh, Barack Obama's presidency was really all about uh, extricating the United States from the role of global policemen. He explicitly disavowed that role in a television address that I vividly remember at the time of the Syrian crisis. And, and Donald Trump was a variation on the same theme. His instinct was always to get out, and HR will confirm that part of the challenge of working in that administration was to try to explain to President Trump that you couldn't just leave. Uh, it wasn't as simple as that. So I, I, I just don't see how the United States will ever get over this fundamental public aversion to long-term engagements. And as long as that's the case, I think we have to think very carefully about the kind of raids you talk about. Think of Libya. 
You know, it seemed very appealing to European leaders, especially to off Gaddafi, and uh, and that was duly done. Uh, and the place has been in abject chaos ever since. It barely exists as a country. It's a sort of uh, it's a zone of anarchy now. And and that's a I think that's a warning to us not to think of raids, short term interventions, Absolutely. as conducive to problem solving. Well, I, I often think of. Uh... When our politicians announce uh, the troop withdrawal schedule, which I remember from the Vietnam era as well, I think of, uh, um, you know, did Eisenhower announce when he was going to take troops out of Germany? No, he announced the goal and we're going to take troops out when the goal is done. We don't seem to announce that goal. But I want to push on this uh, for both of you guys. So South, let's compare South Korea and Iraq. Um, and, and throughout, yes, we don't insist on democracy. We just want something there. And we're willing to work with an authoritarian or strongman regime for a while. And then, as we did in Korea, hope that hope and 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 push them to uh, to liberalize. Uh, but that that's our, our go-to strategy is is work with the local government, strongman, whatever. And but there are most of our strongmen aren't very strong. And they they are they are not able to get the um, cooperation of their own population. Uh, which the South Koreans seem to be able to do. And so we're constantly propping up um, people who are not just authoritarians, but are also hated in their own country and ineffective and weak. And, and so there's a constant civil war going on. And, and so that system doesn't necessarily seem to work. Yeah. It doesn't work in every context, clearly. Uh, and I think that the issue that, that interests me is, well, you know, where do we go from here? My sense is that the United States Certainly, the American public has no appetite for new interventions. But but what if? But this, uh, so Ch- South Korea, let me finish. Let me finish. Sorry. What, let, let's just let's take sorry, a sorry, few, sorry, sorry, few, please go ahead. Let's look ahead. And what if uh, we hear tomorrow that China has in, for, imposed a blockade on Taiwan? Uh, what will happen then? Uh, uh, will the U.S. public uh, respond uh, if the United States acts on? Uh, its obligations that date back to 1979 to prevent a forcible solution of the Taiwanese uh, situation. I genuinely don't know what will happen if there's a crisis over Taiwan. But one thing's for sure, you you can talk about withdrawing or diminishing the US presence all you like. Uh, There'll be a crisis at some point that necessitates some new intervention or if that doesn't happen, an abandonment of American primacy. And if the US simply stood back and watched Taiwan uh, be forced back into the control uh, of the mainland, that would be the end of American primacy in the Indo-Pacific region. So it's not like this is an easy decision to make if if President Biden is confronted with that crisis, which I well I could well imagine. That will be a very interesting test of the current state of mind. Yeah, I want to get HR back in because I I want to ask, but we said that of Vietnam too. So I want to play liberal for a moment. Uh, If we let Vietnam go, that's the end of America. Now, maybe that was the end of America. HR. Well, you know, I I would just say, just to to go back to a couple of points that have been made about long-term commitments. You know, first of all, we are still in Afghanistan, right? 20 years later, we are still in Iraq and the Middle East. But what happens is we continuously declare our intention to leave almost immediately and thereby give up all of the psychological benefits uh, associated with a long-term commitment. And we also give up a longer-term competent approach uh, to, to, to some of the, the, the problems that, that, um, 
impede our ability to, to, to work with others to achieve enduring security and, and stability in, in these countries. Uh, you know, in, in Korea, uh, it was ugly, right? I mean, it was ugly. You know, I just want to point out, I mean, Neil alluded to this already, already, but this was a country that was ravaged by decades of war and brutal occupation. There wasn't a tree left standing in, in, in South Korea. It had no natural resources. You had an, an illiterate population uh, and and uh, and you had a hostile neighbor, right? I mean, what are the chances of success there? Everybody thought pretty low, right? And and uh, it really wasn't until reforms in the 1970s right. uh, that, that the Korean economy took off, and then later there were govern governance reforms and so forth as well. Uh, but it was it was it was a corrupt military dictatorship initially. So you know, I, I think that we have to remember again. There, we need long-term approaches to to these problems, but at a cost acceptable to the American people. And that's what we're kind of debating, John. Is like, hey, the, you know, the the question on Vietnam always is to get to get your your point here. You know, could we have won the war? George Herring, the you know the the, the probably the most accomplished historian of the war, has said, well, that's the wrong question. The question is. Was the war winnable, you know, however you define that, right, which would be maintaining or guaranteeing the freedom and independence of South Vietnam uh, at a cost acceptable to the American people? And I would say that, that, that an incompetent strategy and fundamental dishonesty on the part of Lyndon Johnson sowed the seeds for the lack of, 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 of popular support. In fact, the, the opposition to the war uh, as it reached its, its uh, you know, the highest level at, during the Tet Offensive in 1968. So no, I, I think that we have to ask the right questions, right? We have to consider that it certainly is the point that Neil's making is in a democracy, you get the level of effort in war and the willingness to sacrifice consistent with what the public will bear. And that's okay. That's the way it should be in a democracy. But I would say for leaders that that will is, is not static, right? That will is, it, it, it can be influenced by a leader who explains what's at stake. And I don't see people clamoring now for the withdrawal of 2,500 troops from Afghanistan. How many Americans really care about it, even know what the heck those 2,500 troops are doing. I think this is largely self-inflicted. And it's hard to push back. Are those troops actually achieving a goal? We've been at this 20 years and it's a slow yeah. retreat. It strikes yeah. me that the issue is not so much the time uh, commitment you're asking of Americans, but um, that there has been no strategy. There's been no articulated goal, a, a, a limited achievable goal. We're in Afghanistan to do X and we're going to do what it takes to get X. And furthermore, the goals that have been articulated, at least to me, a non-expert in foreign policy, strike me as fables. Our goal is to get the Taliban and the government to sit down and work out a power-sharing agreement where that's, everybody yeah, yeah. takes turns yeah. singing Kumbaya. That's that's kind of like you know, international I, I, organization gobbledygook, but that is not a, a goal that you. Well, I mean, it's that's it is gobbledygook, and it is it is indicative of our strategic incompetence. Now, I mean, call me old fashioned, John, but I think when you go to war, you ought to try to defeat your enemy. I mean, you you did you did travel all that way, you know, while you're there. Why don't you defeat your enemy? And achieve you know, a, a sustainable outcome that 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 ends with some kind of a political agreement. But you know, the, the old you know, it was only a matter of time when when the retired general would break out Carl von Clausewitz, right, the 19th century Russian philosopher of war. But hey, Clausewitz was right. You know what he said? He said winning in war means convincing your enemy that your enemy's been defeated. 
Well, how well have we done with that on, with, with the Taliban when we kept saying, hey, we're leaving, we're leaving, and hey, we'd like to enter into an agreement with you as we're leaving. And by the way, here's all the concessions we're going to make on our way out. Is that a way to, to fight? It's not a way to fight. So maybe and, it doesn't and, take much time. It just takes announcing your goal and going for it. And, 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 and you know, of, of course, you know, the, the, there are intractable problems in life, right? We're not going to solve Afghanistan's problems. We don't need to. As I mentioned, hey, what if the Taliban are, are in control of, of strategically, you know, uh, uh, you know, unimportant areas of, of Afghanistan uh, and, and, uh, and, are, and are operating in rural areas um, that, that, uh, you know, that don't contain, you know, population centers, uh, unimpeded access to the, to the, to the heroin trade, to the opium trade, uh, which is, which is, you know, which is one of the great sources of, of revenue, not just for the Taliban, for, but for other jihadist terrorist organizations, you know, and, uh, and, you know, so I, I just think that, that we, we, uh, we set up this false dilemma in Afghanistan that, you know, again, it's either going to be Denmark or we failed. I mean, I you know, I think we won the war in Afghanistan, <laughs> but that but but sustaining uh, the, the gains that we've made require sustained support for the Afghan government, and Afghan security forces, not just the U.S., but this co this vast coalition with burden sharing. We can do that at a cost that's acceptable to the American people. I think if 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 the president decides to lead on it, a terrific book that was written about the war in Afghanistan. Uh, by my former student, Emile Simpson, was yeah. war from the ground up. And it's relevant here because uh, as you were talking, HR, about defeating the enemy, I was remembering Emile's argument that in Afghanistan, it was never entirely clear after a certain point who the enemy was. Uh, Emile's argument, he served in, in the British Army uh, in Afghanistan, is that the problem with Afghanistan was that we lo we were looking for a Clausewitzian uh, dichotomy between us and the enemy. Uh, but many, many times our actions created the enemy because in reality, Afghan society was an extraordinary kaleidoscopic uh, complex uh, of factions and, and tribes. And it wasn't always that easy to know who was uh, on the side of the Taliban because uh, son one might be for the government and son two might be with the Taliban and son three, son three might be in the narcotics business. And, and I, I thought Emile's book was brilliant because he said, in truth, our Clausewitzian way of thinking about war didn't work that well in Afghanistan because there wasn't always something as distinct as the enemy, at least in many parts of the country. It's a, it's a brilliantly insightful book written from the vantage point of a junior, junior officer trying to make sense of it uh, on the ground. And he also touched on, I remember him coming back from his first tour and describing the, the war to me uh, in roughly the following words. Well, uh, in some ways, he said, it's it's easy. We, we fly in uh, on helicopters and the enemy, the Taliban run away and then we shoot them. And he said, but then uh, what happens next is the problem because then he said, the Americans turn up and destroy the, the opium crop and the Taliban come back in. This was a caricature of the experience, but I think yeah. it hit, hit quite well the nail on the head that we, we could sort of pick a fight and probably win that far fight most of the time. But it was it was the next phase that was was difficult, the phase that would actually consolidate, quote unquote, victory. Yeah, but, you know, I, I would say, you know, and, and I, I know Neil and I reviewed the book favorably. This is War from the Ground Up. 
is extremely insightful because what what he what he shows is that that this conflict has local dynamics, right? right? And and you know the war in in Helmand Province is different from in in Kandahar Province and and in, then in Paktia Province and so forth. Uh, but but it, what's important is to be able to get to the sustainable local outcome that is intolerant of the Taliban and the right. Taliban's agenda uh, of of uh, of terror, right? <laughs> of terrorizing their own population, but then of course you know providing a safe haven and support base for jihadist terrorists who already exist in that region, right? About twenty or so you know, designated terrorist organizations. And that doesn't mean we have to solve that problem, right? What that means is we have to be aware of the sources of strength and support for the Taliban, which are, which are, are emotional and ideological, uh, but but also have to do with how certain tribes view their best bet, right? What is the best path to the to the future that they want? And that's a political settlement, right? And 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 that's a settlement that Afghans have to come up with, but they can't come up with it. You know, if the Taliban is in charge from a military perspective, so the military operation that he's describing—you know, a, you know, an, an air assault against a, a Taliban target or or organization—that's not going to solve the, you know, the, the political competition. And, and and when we don't consider that this political competition is for power, resources, and survival, and then help the Afghans put into place some sort of a mediating mechanism. A political process at the local level, a jirga, you know, a, 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 a tribal jirga that, that that allows them to realize, well, we can settle our differences through a political process rather than shooting at each other. So that's what I mean by the consolidation of gains. That applies to the local level as well as the national level. And this doesn't mean right, that, that Afghanistan, again, would be free of, of violence, right? It's a violent place now, but it, but this is not a lost war. I really believe that we are engaged in self-defeat at this stage in, in, in Afghanistan. It's worth remembering, isn't it, that there are also uh, disastrous scenarios when the United States does not intervene. And, and we haven't touched on, on that. But Syria uh, has been not quite a forever war, but an extraordinarily protracted uh, civil war. Uh, and the United States basically took the decision not to intervene in that conflict. That has not produced great outcomes. I, I think there's a very common pathology in discussions of foreign policy in the United States to say, well, all problems arise from uh, American intervention. And if only the United States wouldn't intervene, uh, it would all be so much better. But we actually have a perfect illustration that that can't be right. Uh, you have to keep asking the counterfactual question. What if we hadn't intervened? What if we just sort of taken legal action against the Afghan government after 9-11? Would, would we be in a better place? Well, obviously no, because if Afghanistan had remained consistently under the control of the Taliban, we might well have had other 9-11s since that time. Uh, the Iraq case, I think, is more difficult because one could imagine a counterfactual of containment of Saddam because that was what we were doing prior to 2003. I think on balance, that would have been a smarter strategy to continue because in practice, overthrowing Saddam was just great for Iran. The principal beneficiary of our intervention in, in Iraq was ultimately the regime in Tehran. But one has to keep running these counterfactual questions. And while I'm on the subject, given that my role as the historian is to broaden out these discussions, I want to plug a book I've been reading, uh, which is Philip Zelikow's marvelous new book, The Road Less Traveled, 
describing a very different role that the United States has played in the relatively recent past, just over a century ago, the role of peace broker. Uh, and Zelika argues in this beautifully researched and written book that there was a near opportunity, a very near miss to achieve peace in 1916, to cut the first war, world war in half, and that Woodrow Wilson could have done it if only he'd executed better on the opportunity that presented itself. Remember, uh, it had been Teddy Roosevelt who'd brokered peace between uh, Russia and Japan uh, only a decade before. Uh, and I'm, I'm fascinated by this reminder uh, that the United States plays a different role historically or can play a different role historically from the intervener, the 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 kinetic actor, that actually the United States as peace broker and peacemaker, that, that is a pretty important role that the United States can play and should continue to play. Think uh, more recently of the role the US played in ending uh, the war over what remained of, of Yugoslavia, yeah. Richard Holbrook's finest hour, the Dayton Accords. And I, I keep asking myself as I listen to uh, Tony Blinken, the new Secretary of State, and indeed President Biden, as they set out their foreign policy stall, if there's not a, a, a more important role to be played by the United States in peace-broking or peacemaking than in simply intervening in conflicts that we can't necessarily uh, or don't necessarily have the staying power to win. But it needs some hard-nosed realism. I mean, that's what they vision themselves as doing now. They are calling for talks and calling for power-sharing agreements. We'll be the peace broker. Well, uh, it, it needs a little more hard-nosedness. Than well, that. well, you know, and and just the the you know, the example of the of the Balkans in the nineties, ninety-five. You know, uh, that was that was a large military operation to to impose uh, to impose peace initially. And remember, the way that President Clinton sold it to the American people was it's a one-year mission. We're still there. We're still we're still in in the ball. Yeah, that's and, the and so yeah. you know, I I think it's it's important to recognize you know that that it doesn't have to be, you know. Of course, we think of one hundred thirty thousand troops, you know, in Iraq or in Afghanistan. I mean, the, the the level now is quite low, and and what are we getting out of it, right? Well, we're getting an insurance policy in Afghanistan to prevent jihadist terrorists from again taking over large portion of the country that they could then use to plan, prepare, raise funds for, resource, uh, train, and 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 then and execute uh, more mass murder attacks. Now you think, oh, well, would that really happen? Well, look what happened when ISIS took over territory the size of Britain after our disengagement from Iraq in December 2011. That's precisely what they were doing, is using that control of territory to plan very sophisticated and devastating attacks that we, we foiled many of them, but remember, they shot down a Russian airliner uh, and, they, and they were trying to go after other uh, uh, to um, for other aviation threats. They were trying to develop biological weapons. Uh, I mean, so it, it, it's, it is important to remain engaged against these enemies because you want them worried about their safety instead of what they're going to do to you. Now, that doesn't mean it's U.S. soldiers doing all, every one of those raids and operations. Actually, it's the Afghans doing that now. And so, so it, the sustained effort against, you know, against jihadist terrorists uh, in, in in Iraq and Syria is also imp important. So the question is, you know, what are military forces doing in support of political objectives and outcomes? Now, we're not going to solve the problem of, you know, security in Iraq 
right? Iraq's about to go through through another, you know, another election. It's going to be messy. It's it's Iraq's in a very difficult situation. Uh, but but our effort there is ensuring the defeat of the enduring defeat of ISIS, and it's acting as a check on Iranian influence in the region, uh, in Iraq and and in Syria. I think it's worth it, right? It's it's a relatively small cost. It's it's um, worth it, but but how is the question, right? So, so let me. Um, I want to get back to Afghanistan and and ways in which this might be done better. As an economist, I always look for the money. And as 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 we look to these events, uh, external support is always a key part of our problems. In in Vietnam, there was external support to the North Vietnamese, and we we couldn't do what it took to stop the ex- uh, external support. We couldn't even shoot. We couldn't even bomb their MiG site, the uh, the uh, SAM missile sites, because we didn't want to make the Russians mad. Uh, in Iraq, we've got Iran, who is the external uh, supplier. In uh, I, I'm, So one question, I'm curious what the external source of support is for the Taliban. Uh, what I've heard is Saudi Arabian money and uh, our drug policy, uh, that basically it's a it's a it's both financed by the Saudis and also um, making money off the heroin trade. Are we doing the sort of sanctioning things that we could do to try to cut off uh, their external support? And then internally, who in uh, you know we we tried Vietnamization. Uh, who in Afghanistan likes the Afghan government and 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 trusts them and wants them to take over? To what extent there is a structure there? There's a social structure. There's a civil society. There's the tribes. To what extent are they living in just a gangland world where you got to bet on the winner? Uh, and is there a way for us to, to have them think that perhaps we're there? what is the political structure that works in Afghanistan without the Taliban? It's certainly not, oh, there's a central government that people seem to respect like it's Washington, D.C. Sorry, I asked about three questions, but uh, no, uh, well, no, this is important to, to the way to think about it, right? Because if you want to get to sustainable outcomes consistent with your interests in these conflicts, you need essentially you need an internal strategy and an external strategy. Because, Cut off the outside support, and yeah. there's a viable uh, internal strategy. Absolutely. You're not just pretending, right? And and so in, in Afghanistan, the, the number one problem is Pakistan, and the actions of the Pakistani army as as executed through the Inner Services Intelligence or ISI. And and what the what the what the uh, Pakistani army is doing is is supporting the Taliban uh, in an effort for them to be able to have the dominance say in in a in a post war Afghanistan. The reason they want this is twofold. One is that two thirds of the Pashtun population and the war there is primarily an intra Pashtun civil war in Afghanistan. Two thirds of that population is in Pakistan. And should there be a, 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 a resurgence of Pashtun nationalism, that could be the first step in the dismemberment of Pakistan. The second reason is the Pakistani army sees an Indian behind every tree. And, and, they, and they, they, they fear that, that if there is a, a government friendly to India in Afghanistan, they will be surrounded, right? So this is the argument of strategic depth. Well, you know, we could do a lot more, I think, to convince the Pakistanis the best way to accomplish their objectives in Afghanistan is through diplomacy rather than perpetuating violence and continuing to allow this this terrorist ecosystem to to exist along the Afghanistan-Pakistan border that is a threat to all humanity. Uh, But we've been inconsistent with the Pakistanis. I mean, this has been the most astounding case of serial gullibility I've ever seen in my life with the Pakistanis. Because what the Pakistanis do is they they give you the speech. I, I, I wrote about this in the book. If anyone wants to read, read what every Pakistani tells you, leader tells you. 
And I'll tell you, so many Americans fall for it because of ego. They convince themselves these are generals and admirals and ambassadors. Hey, I'm going to be the person that really convinces Pakistani leadership to fundamentally change their, you know, their behavior. And, 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 and the Pakistanis encourage that, uh, that, that conclusion. So, you know, external support is, is, is extremely um, important to address as part of getting to that sustainable outcome. And then internally, you know, there are mediating mechanisms, uh, you know, ac across Afghanistan. It's, these, this, these are the tribal lawyer jurgas, and they work. Uh, and there is, there is a legislature in Afghanistan that functions. There is a government that is not universally loved, but I'll tell you, it's a heck of a lot better than, than the previous government. And no matter, it was an ugly election, but it was an election. Those who now are saying, hey, let's come up with a different government, you know, that includes the Taliban. How about that? Well, you know, what kind of process is that based on? It's not based on any any uh, Afghan process. It's it's the United States advocating for the Taliban against the Afghan government. And, you know, the, and the Taliban is not popular. Right. People remember what it was like to live in that hell from right. from 1996 to 2001. So we, we are you know, we're, we're actually acting as our own worst enemy in Afghanistan, when you look at really what has to happen internally and then what the drivers are externally. I'd like to jump in and ask a question to HR and Neil. Um, HR, what are we training for when it comes to war right now? And I'm not talking about the Navy and the Air Force, the death from above guys. The, I'm talking the Army and the Marines, the boots on the ground guys. What war are they preparing for? And what have Afghanistan and Iraq taught us about fighting war? And then Neil, I'm curious as to how the British Empire approached this question and the lull between the in the second half of the 19th century preparing for the First World War. You've written about the pity of the war. And part of the pity or the tragedy would have been that the British Forces went into World War One using 19th century tactics. So H.R. O'Neill, jump in with that. Yeah. And also the end of the British Empire, I think, um, bears on this question of how do you leave? Yes. Yeah, what, what, what do you go first, Neil? Well, I'll happily go first. Uh, it, it's, uh, I mean, it seems to me that uh, the, the key thing to, to think about here is how far the United States is, in fact, in a similar situation uh, to the British Empire uh, in, let us say, the 1940s. Uh, and this is where I want to actually throw the, the ball back in, in John's direction, uh, because uh, the, the debt levels that we now are contemplating uh, have now are close to, if they haven't already exceeded, the debt levels at the end of World War II. So you're looking at a federal debt in public hands of around 100% of GDP. And the Congressional Budget Office latest figures indicate that that proportion could double uh, in the next couple of, of decades on current policy trajectories. And I guess the question that I'm always interested in is how far there's a rule that says when your interest payments on your debt exceed your uh, defense expenditures, it's game over for your uh, empire or for your great power status. Now, the US is not there yet, not least because interest rates have been at an astonishingly historically low level uh, in, in recent years. But the CBO expects rates to go up, and so it seems to investors. So this is a chance for, for John to show us uh, his mettle. H how far is the United States entering a meaningful period of fiscal overstretch 
similar to that that Britain found itself in in the, in the mid 20th century when when the point is reached that you actually have to unwind your overseas commitments because domestic priorities not least paying the interest on the debt simply crowd out your your global ambitions uh, so yeah i think i think i have an economics question here for for john before we get to to hr's question about what kind of war we have to fight next if i'm right that we're in this kind of condition of fiscal overstretch we might not be in a position to fight a next war because we might be too fiscally constrained john well um i, I doubt that in fact because defense is remarkably cheap what are we spending on defense now 3% of gdp uh, our deficit at the high end is 3.4, I think, right now. We just borrowed 20% of GDP to send checks to voters. Uh, you know, our our fiscal problem is our domestic um, our, our domestic entitlement state uh, and our unwillingness to charge middle class taxes to pay for it. And that defense would be is just a kind of a drop in the bucket. Now we have, <laughs> as you've seen. When you're in a uh, domestic entitlements fiscal crisis, everything gets cut. They don't fix the potholes. They don't do the defense. Uh, but I, it's certainly within the U.S.'s fiscal capacity to double or triple military expenditure. You know, the U.K., it, it ran into trouble because it, it couldn't uh, finance World War I and World War II. Uh, but in, unless we're talking about World War III with China, um, uh, that you know, the, it's just not that expensive. Furthermore, we're kind of edging towards... Um, uh, you know, you know, when, when the Romans and, and the British ran an empire, they made money on their colonies. And, it, you know, if, if the U.S., as was discussed in Iraq, if, you know, maybe we had a U.N. protectorate or something of the sort, mm -hmm. uh, one should be able to bring a tremendous prosperity to a country that the U.S. basically runs. You know, imagine a free trade zone between Iraq and the U.S. There's immense amounts of prosperity on both ends. Uh, so it, it, the idea that it necessarily needs to be a money losing project is, isn't obvious. So I don't think, I don't think we are constrained by fiscal uh, things. I think our fiscal choices. I think we will choose to to spend twenty percent of GDP on checks rather than one percent of GDP on defense, and that may. But that's a that's a failure of will rather than a failure of budgets. Just a tiny point of of detail that might Please. be of interest to to listeners. Uh, the the CBO uh, says indeed that that we're spending 3.4 percent of GDP on defence and a mere 1.6% last year on net interest. Uh, but if the CBO is right, uh, that number on net interest will rise above 3.4, i.e. above current defense spending in 2034. Uh, and the lesson of, of the history of past empires is that when you get to that crossover point, that servicing your debt exceeds what you're spending on national security, you're probably a power heading, heading for the the exit. HR, what, what's the next war going to look like? I, I don't want to. I, I, <clears throat> we are headed for a fiscal calamity. Uh, it's just the defense is a is the, this kind of defense, a non-great power thing, is is a small part of that fiscal calamity. Yeah. HR? Well, you know, on, on the next war, you hope, you hope you don't have one, right? So I, I think what's immensely important is for us to continue to deter by denial, essentially convince potential enemies that they can accomplish their objective through the use of force. And I think your comments earlier, Neil, allude to the point that it's it's really your military capability and your capacity to size your force times your will, your willingness to use it is what would deter something like a cross-strait invasion of Taiwan by the People's Liberation Army, for example, that could be the beginning of a disastrous war. Uh, and, and, and one of the reasons why we, you know, we, we have experienced surprise uh, oftentimes and then had to respond uh, with military forces having been surprised 
is that we we tended to not believe our, our enemies and what they said they would do. For example, you know, uh, Osama bin Laden declared war on the United States in early 1990s. We're like, oh, who's that guy? Well, then he bombed the uh, the World Trade Center with a, a truck bomb uh, a few years later, and and then bombed our embassies in '98, and continued to say he wanted to commit mass murder of Americans. We didn't take him at his word. You know, in in uh, in 1950, the last U.S. troops leave South Korea under the theory that this is peripheral to our interests, right? And just a couple months later, the North invades and, and we're in, in, a, in a war, uh, you know, a three-year-long war, costly war on, on the Korean uh, peninsula. So I think it's important for us to, to maintain our deterrent capability. But I think it's also really important when you're, first of all, you can't go wrong <laughs> when you're thinking about future war to, to, to consider how Sir Michael Howard, uh, uh, the, the late Michael Howard ta- taught us how to think about war in width, depth, and context, and probably, the, I think, the best essay ever written on military history, the use and abuse of military history. And in it, in that essay, he also says, hey, you're never going to get it right. You know, you're not going to get your next war right. You're not going to be able to fully anticipate the challenges of the war. The key is to not be so far off the mark that you can't adjust once the realities of that conflict become inescapable. And I think what was remarkable about and, and noteworthy about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan is we were really way, way off the mark with this orthodoxy of the revolution in military affairs, right? The next war, hey, it's going to be fundamentally different from wars that have gone before it, you know, and 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 our technological military prowess would, would deliver, you know, ch- uh, quick, cheap victories. Of course, they should have read Michael Howard, those who believe that, because they would have studied war in width to see its continuities and its political continuities, its human continuities, its uncertainty and interactive nature, and it's, it's a contest of wills. So I, I'm afraid we're going to do the same thing, Neil. I mean, I and, and John and, and and Bill. I mean, I, I think that we are now resurrecting the orthodoxy of the revolution in military affairs, so we can get an easy and affordable answer to the problem of future war. And this this is now a new range of, of cutting edge technologies. <laughs> but again, we we are not we're not doing what the historian Carl Becker said we should do is to, is to, to consider both continuity and change. He said that. Continuity and change should walk hand in hand in a happy way, without one disputing primacy over over the claiming primacy over the other. Um, and and I think we we always are biased in favor of change. And uh, and and I think we have to keep in mind what what the historian Conrad Crane said. Right? I mean, there are two ways to fight fundamentally, right? Asymmetrically, or stupidly. And and you hope that your enemy picks stupidly, but they're unlikely to do so. So there are countermeasures to everything. So Bill said, okay, what are we training for? We have to train for a, a range of conflicts because you don't know what's going to happen. You know, we talk about great power competition and how important it is to get ready for the big one, which it, it, it is, is important to do to deter the big one with Russia or China. But also great power competitions play out in other arenas in ways that are much different from the big naval confrontation you might be envisioning in the South China Sea, for example. So I think it's important to have a range of military capabilities, ready forces who can fight, because really what war is, war is is the children's game of rock, paper, scissors. And if you show up with only one of those three and can't use them in combination, your enemy's going to have an advantage. But let me push you, HR, on, on this. Um, so there's the great power question of Taiwan, but what strikes me in this context of more worrisome is what do we do if Iran flattens Tel Aviv? Um, the only conceivable answer. Now, you, you, you've been downplaying the U.S. military. We beat Saddam Hussein amazingly fast. 
So the only conceivable answer is the U.S. mounts uh, a Kuwait-Iraq-style conventional invasion, takes out the regime. Because the alternative is uh, either us, us or the Israelis, are we really going to have a nuclear response and, and murder tens of millions of Iranians? I don't think so. Um, now, the will to go in needs some kind of plan to go out. And, and it still strikes me that you're underselling that Iran, we went in beautifully, and then just the management of when the war was over, when the power, the, the, the regime Iraq, fell. Iraq, yeah, yes. In Iraq, yeah. then the running of the peace was an absolute catastrophic disaster. And that the ability to run a peace is what allows you to credibly say, we're going to deter that act of war. You know, the, the chance that Iran does something like flatten Tel Aviv is not insignificant. And in the context of Afghanistan and Iraq, that seems like the thing we should be thinking about, not how do we rebuild China after we made that one. That's a long way away. Yeah. And, you know, I think what's also, I mean, I think we just have to acknowledge that as as Iran violates, you know, this the so-called nuclear agreement and 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 restarts the nuclear program that it claims never existed, <laughs> then then uh I, I think that you're going to have uh, you know an, an Israeli government and defense force uh, that will be leaning maybe more toward a a, uh, a preventive war and and um, and this is not unprecedented of course right there there were IDF strikes in in Iraq uh, in the uh, in the 19 uh, 1980s uh, there was the there was the uh, 2007 strike in into uh, into Syria in the Darzor uh, region. Uh, to take out a, a nuclear facility that nobody knew existed until the IDF bombed it, or the Israeli Defense Force bombed it. But Israel's it. not going to invade Iran and unseat the regime directly, and then try to no. But but I, but they, they, they are the, the Begin the Begin doctrine does still exist, right? Which means that that the, Israel will not tolerate a hostile state having a you know having nuclear weapons. Uh, so. You know, I, I think that there, there, the possibility of war in the Middle East, but there's already wars going on, multiple wars in the Middle East. You know, in, in Yemen, the Syrian civil war, uh, you know, a low level, you know, a low level uh, you know, war in in Iraq as well. But you know, I, I think it could get worse. Every time I think it, could, it couldn't get worse in the Middle East, it, it could get worse, and and that's why it's it's very important for us to have very strong deterrent capabilities to to for the. the deterrent, for the, I want to push it. The deterrent capability we have, we know how to go in. Uh, we just don't know how to get out, and and not knowing how to get out is going to stop us from going in when that is the least damaging option. Yeah, well, it, you know, it depends obviously on what the context is, right? I mean, it, with the right threat, you can generate the will to do, you know, what we what, you know what what's necessary. I mean, uh, you know, the the calculation that the that Imperial Japan made in in nineteen in nineteen forty one was that the United States would not stomach the cost necessary. To penetrate the inner island chain uh, and threaten Japan directly, they're they're wrong about that. Uh, the, the 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 miscalculation uh, that that uh, that that the Kim dictatorship made in North Korea was that the Americans uh, won't stomach what it would take uh, to defend South Korea. They're wrong about that, right? So so I I think what what the dilemma we often have is is that that we are you know unwilling to maybe anticipate dangers. And take the appropriate actions to deter them or to prepare for for war, uh, and and then and then we're, once we're surprised, you know, we have a hard time mobilizing what's necessary because we haven't prepared for it in, in advance. So I, I think you know you never get you never get to prove a negative, right? You can't say, okay, who knows what wars we've prevented, right? By 
by our, you know, by prepared, uh, ready forward position military forces. Uh, but I think they're more important today, really, than 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 you know, really at any time uh, since the end of World War II. And it, I can think, I think you can make the argument it worked, right? I mean, there there hasn't been a great power war, you know, for over seventy five years. And uh, and I, I think that, that 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 one of the reasons is forward position capable U.S. forces as part of strong alliances. And and uh, and I think it, it still works. And and we should would abandon that deterrent posture. I think at our own peril. Okay, gentlemen, uh, wars may be endless, but this broadcast is not. So the witching hour approaches. Uh, I'd like to uh, end this with one last question to all three of you uh, as we pride ourselves in being a forward-thinking broadcast. And here's the question. Uh, This month marks 18 years since uh, the U.S. uh, entry into Iraq. Uh, This fall is 20 years since the U.S. went into Afghanistan. If we look ahead 18 to 20 years from now, gentlemen, uh, answer the following. Number one, will we have relived the Iraq-Afghanistan experience in another country? Number two, fiscally, can this country fight wars 18 to 20 years from now? Number three, HR, strategically, will we have a strategy in place to fight wars? And then finally, given that political leadership with each passing generation becomes less and less directly involved in the military, will we have political will, public will to actually fight war? So, John, why don't you kick it off and maybe go from the fiscal angle? Do you think 18 to 20 years now we can afford to prosecute wars? Um, Yes, if we want to. (laughs) Again, you know, we're not talking about... 40% 40% of GDP uh, expenditures. The question is, will we want to? And fundamentally, does America have the will? To, do we believe that we stand for something that's important in the world? And uh, I, I see that in our current zeitgeist uh, as, as being the thing that falls apart. And it's not the will to fight wars, it's the will to defend democracy, Western civilization, uh, freedom uh, as, as something useful and wonderful in the world. And uh, who knows if we have that. Okay, Neil, take us 18 to 20 years from now. Talk about war. Well, if you believe the sort of mainstream prognosticators, by that time, the Chinese economy will be larger than the US economy. I, I don't necessarily subscribe to that view because a lot can go wrong in China. But that is certainly the that's the base case that you'll get from most people who, who project out gross domestic product data. Right. And I think in the big question really is, is going to be uh, what happens in that region, uh, not just uh, Taiwan, but the South China Sea, as uh, a richer, more technologically advanced uh, uh, Xi Jinping, because he'll still be in power, assuming his health holds up, decides to make uh, the move. That will be the big test, because it will no longer be uh, the wars of choice. Uh, This would be a war of necessity to maintain uh, the position of the US, not just with respect to Taiwan, but with respect to the Indo-Pacific region generally. If we do not uh, rise to the challenge, the Japanese will draw the conclusion that we are no longer the paramount uh, strategic force uh, in the region, uh, and so will other uh, countries. India will c- draw that conclusion, so will Australia. So I think that's the big uh, showdown. The question is when it will happen. Uh, and our colleague, Misha Oslin, uh, speculated that, the, that such a showdown could happen in right. 2025. Uh, I think uh, Admiral Jim Stavridis has a novel coming out that in, imagines a 
conflict rather further off in, I think, 2034. Uh, but I think that's that's going to be the showdown. And my fear, and I'll end on this note, is that the US is setting itself up fiscally to be unable to prevail. And I'll, I'll plug Philip Zelika's work again. He just published an excellent essay with Bob Blackwell on the issue of our commitment to Taiwan. It is not encouraging. Recent war games have not been encouraging. Uh, so that's what to watch for. I think this could be the moment that uh, that will be America's sewers. If we blow it, uh, if we either intervene and fail or simply back down, that will be the moment that Britain experienced in the Suez crisis. That will be the end of empire moment for the U.S. H.R., you get the last word. Okay. I just want to first say that we're not an empire. The United States is not an empire. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Nobody in the rest of the world nobody in the rest of the world believes that only Americans believe this hey, it's, it's if true, you're though. in we're, Afghanistan we're, if you're in Mesopotamia <laughs> sorry HR you're an empire hey I, I would just say that that uh, your your question on on will we be uh, strategically competent I don't think so and and one of the reasons is we don't study military history or diplomatic history in, in academia anymore and and I think that's because of the unfortunate uh, mistaking of of the study of war for advocacy of it. And, and many people confuse you know, military history, the study of military and war with militarism. I think it's quite odd, you know. I mean, you would never you you would never accuse an oncologist of being an advocate for the disease he or she studies and and, and tries to treat and, and cure. This is a metaphor that uh, the, the late historian Dennis Showalter, a great military historian, used to use uh, frequently. So I, I think that, you know, that, you know, again, Phil Zelikow, we're going to be plugging him this whole time. He's written a great essay on strategic competence as well. And I think it really begins, you know, that competence begins with studying, with studying history. Predictably, I would say that as a, as a historian. But um, I think that we are in this trap of believing that, hey, we just, we're just never going to do this again. Right. And as, again, Conrad Craig has said, we've never been able to never do it again. And, and, uh, and I think an example Neil made earlier in, in the discussion is Libya in which the Obama administration, in, 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 in trying to avoid what they perceived as the mistakes of the George W. Bush administration in Iraq, actually exceeded them by doing nothing to, sh- to shape the political outcome on the back end of, of Gaddafi's demise. And, and look at Libya today. Now, that's a forever war right there. Now, we're not there, but the war didn't end when we decided to disengage. So, I, I mean, I've really enjoyed the discussion, everybody. <laughs> and... Uh, I, I hope that that maybe you know all of us can advocate for the study of diplomatic and military history uh, as a way to prevent war uh, by understanding it better. Hey, and I have a good idea for a future edition of Goodfellas. We should invite Phil Zelico on. He is, after all, a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. Bingo. Uh, that's not why we're plugging his work, but I do think he illustrates the, the extraordinary value of applying history to contemporary policy problems. Thanks, guys. That was a great conversation. And Neil's right. We should return to this topic uh, uh, very soon. So that's it for this episode of Goodfellas. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We'll be back a week from now with a new topic and, yes, a new conversation. On the behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, by all means, stay safe, stay healthy, We'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week.